A warm welcome to Questions Worth Asking, a podcast where we capture and translate wisdom from multiple disciplines in order to fuel the next generation of changemakers. Hello, welcome back to Questions Worth Asking. This is Season 2, Episode 6. I'm Priya. And I'm John. And today we are sort of beyond excited because we have not one but two special guests with us. We have retired Professor Ed Shine and his son Peter Shine, where as many of you in the field of OD will probably recognize their names from, from all their, their books and their work. Ed's work goes back several, several decades, and he now has a, a new partnership with his son with a brand new book just released last year called Humble Leadership, where Peter also brings in his experiences from Silicon Valley. So Ed and Peter, welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, we are so excited to have you. So I guess... I guess the first thing, this is a recent, you've only recently started working together, is that right? That's right, about three years now. So can you tell us before, I really want to learn more about your book, but could you just tell us what brought the two of you to work together? I'll let Peter start that because he initiated it. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, so Ed moved out to here to Palo Alto, California about 2011, and I had had a sort of 20 to 30 year career in corporate development and marketing and business development at a bunch of different companies in Silicon Valley. Uh, as a father and son, we always shared a lot of stories with each other. And one of Ed's important books, particularly out here, is a book uh, about the culture of, of digital equipment called Deck is Dead, Long Live Deck. So um, we had a lot to talk about in sort of sharing our experiences of what culture and leadership and technology organizations is all about in working at big companies in Silicon Valley and small companies and then consulting from the outside. We had a lot of stories to share with each other. We kind of realized there was there was one sort of set of central themes that we wanted to put together into a specific book. And that's really what came out as Humble Leadership last August. Um, but there's more to it than that. And we decided that for both of us at, at the different stages in our career, that collaborating and doing some consulting work together and making some speeches and presentations and then writing books would be... Uh, the best thing that we could do at that point in time. So that's why we started the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute about three years ago and uh, are writing books and, and teaching and lecturing when we can. Amazing. And, and the book, the Humble Leadership book, can you tell us a little bit about that? I'll, I'll take the first part of that. The, the title, Humble Leadership, The Power of Relationships, Openness and Trust, each word is an important piece of, of what this book is about. So let's start with humility, humble leadership. Why humble? We see that in today's world, the problems that people face that have to be dealt with by heads of organizations, uh, I prefer that over just calling everyone a leader, face very complex socio-technical problems and discover that they really need help. So humility is not seen as a trait uh, that we're saying all leaders have to be humble, but rather 
a person who sees a better way of doing something, which is our definition of leadership, faces immediately the issue that maybe I don't know enough. And so I have to be humble in the face of what I don't know, which means I have to create relationships with people that will get them to tell me what I don't know and will actually help me figure out what the next better direction or adaptive solution for our complex situation might be. So it leads to the notion that really it's the relationship that matters, that leader is not the point, but leadership is the point, which means several people get involved. There might be an official head, but the leadership process is an interactive process. And that has a lot to do with distance. Yeah, we one of the things that we wanted to talk about was this the idea of the myth of professional distance. That one of the things that we saw happening sort of through the kind of what was taught in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in business schools about management and control mm-hmm. created a culture ar- around professional distance, that you want to maintain professional distance so that you can be responsive and and adaptive and you can move people around in an organization. And, and um, what you don't want is you don't want personal relationships fouling up the works. The well-oiled machine does not want, you know, unpredictable relationships to get in the way of its efficiency. And we just more and more, we talked about this, just that, you know, professional distance is really the thing that, that ultimately kind of is more about distance and less about professional. You get in the way of effectiveness in the interests of, maybe in the interests of efficiency, but effectiveness requires that you not be professionally distanced so that you do have a deeper level of relationship with people so that it's not about, can I ask a question and have you answer it as a leader? It's, can I get an answer to a question that I didn't ask? Hmm. That's what the, the, ultimately our goal and, you know, this concept of humble leadership is that there's so much more knowledge in an organization that uh, is available and needs to be able to flow smoothly through the organization and professional distance in its sort of traditional management cast doesn't work anymore. So openness and trust are really created by the person who sees some need to do something new and different, creating a more personal relationship with teammates and direct reports and even the boss in order to open up the communication channel because that's the only way you can build what all organizations want but rarely get, namely up and down and sideways trust so that communications are honest so we don't lie and cheat and uh, tell the boss what he wants to hear. Uh, All of that results from distance. And if we want truth and openness and real problem solving, all of that has to be collapsed. We'll call that a 
level two relationship to contrast it to level one bureaucratic professional role-based everyone in their in their lane all of that undermines communication and trust and we want the potential leadership process to be one of building communication and trust so that the solution will often come out of the group rather than out of the official leader or head of the group. Right. And I really appreciate this phrasing of professional distance. Mm. That's helping me you know, almost visualize some of the connections or lack thereof that I've had with bosses or supervisors or colleagues or teammates. So I've heard relationships and professional distance and trust and open communications. The word that's popping up for me, though, is connection. What What's all of our views on what did it used to mean to be connected decades ago? And now what does connection look like in today's workplace? Well, I'll take a swipe at that from network theory. Originally, I think connections were just who actually talks to whom or writes messages to whom in this very formal way. But I think even then there was the phrase strong connections or weak connections. And that is a direct counterpart to what we're calling level one bureaucratic role-related relationships. Those would be weak connections in the network theory versus level two more personalized, and we use that word deliberately uh, to indicate make, having an interest in the people that you're working with, not just their roles, but their actual personalities as they relate to the work to be done. That's a strong connection uh, or one kind of strong connection to contrast it with what we think of as level three, which was intimacy, which we don't really want unless the task requires it. Like in a SEALs team or a an army rangers team that might have to get to know each other so well that they actually could be described as having very strong connections and know each other at a much more intimate level. So our levels of concept is very close to how the network theorists talk about strong and weak connections. And I guess I would only add to that that in the sort of modern context of connectedness, whether it's through social media or whether it's through um, any sort of electronic media, it is much easier to establish nominal connections. But just to amplify Ed's point, that those are, in our taxonomy, those are really level one connections. Those are still transactional relationships, as opposed to deep personal connections, which Generally, you know, the, I think our rule would be if there isn't a fair amount of actual in the same room at the same time, breathing the same air, uh, in-person connection, then, then the kinds of relationships that ultimately need to be built around trust and openness are going to be hard to establish. More simply put, you know, in a large organization, you might establish a good long-distance relationships over different forms of electronic media, but you don't 
really feel like you know that person until you've met in person, maybe had a meal together, shared some personal information about each other to each other. That's the kind of relationship that we feel like is sort of the the maybe the the minimum threshold for the for the right level of trust to develop. It's asking a lot um, because it is easy for a lot of organizations to sort of believe that they're very tightly connected because real time speed of light communication is abundantly available to everybody, but. We are, you know, sort of still maybe old school in the belief that uh, in-person connectedness is something that is a little different and it's important. So this, um, so it's so a level one at the transactional level, level two at a kind of personally cooperative level, and then level three at this emotional intimacy. I think in your book, you've also got a, a minus one level. So level minus one. Can you tell us what that would be? Well, minus one is an asymmetric relationship where one person actually has power over another person and uses it. Okay. So we think of that as domination. Now, the obvious places in prisons and POW camps, and those are the extreme versions. But when you think of a sweatshop, uh, a manager exploiting immigrants cruelly with the threat that if they don't do things exactly uh, like work the 10, 12 hours a day, they'll be reported uh, to the authorities and deported. That's a modern version of level minus one. And then we encounter from our own grandchildren stories of bosses who may only be a few years ahead of them but who view the boss as the opportunity to dominate you, who are rude, who tell you exactly how you're supposed to be and and make the new employee uh, feel humiliated and depersonalized. So at that level, it's still going on. And in fact, maybe one of the biggest problems in today's world that senior executives say yes, we're trying to engage people, and so they give them a lot of perquisites and uh, nice places to work. But the bosses down in the trenches uh, often continue to be minus one bosses who undo all the good that the perquisites and the extras and the good food and the good hours are there in order to engage the person. Mm. You engage the person by treating them as a full person, not by giving them free meals. Hmm. Uh, Ed, I've got a question for you. If, if I look back at if I look at humble leadership, and then I also look back at the rest of the your kind of decades of careers, humility has been a central theme. Humble leadership, humble consulting, humble inquiry. What is it about being humble that has kept you interested for this long? The reality that I don't know the answer. It's very simple. I consider myself pretty arrogant in terms of knowing about processes and how things really work. But when I'm in a consulting or a leadership relationship where I'm accountable for something and I have to make the decision or the client says, tell me what to do, 
my immediate and most honest reaction is the actual quote that I think I used in my consulting book is where I was approaching this this lunch and I was the consultant and I knew they had lots of questions and I was overwhelmed by this feeling of I don't know what to do. That's what I mean by humility. To admit that to myself and have faith that once we're at the lunch, and this has always happened, once we're actually talking, uh, things do begin to make, begin to be clear and begin to make sense. And it turns out the answer evolves partly out of me and partly out of the others. But I did not have it uh, initially, so I have to be humble in every new relationship that I enter. I'm thinking about resistance. I guess mm. my question is, where does resistance, what, what's your experience of where resistance comes from with regard to humility? And what I'll add to the question, just to give you a second to think, is um, I really appreciated when you said maybe not every team needs to have the level three emotional connection. Uh, that was a learning moment for me because many teams that I've worked with or been privileged to lead I've come in with a bias or an assumption that every team needs an emotional connection, otherwise can't get to a flowing, performing kind of level. But maybe I was not correct in that or not helpful in that. Is it something about which teams need which level of connection and then maybe some resistance to this doesn't need to be an emotional team, so I'm resisting that because it's not appropriate for this group of people? to get to that level does that one of, yeah i mean one of the things that we do try to clarify in the in the book is we're not sort of um suggesting a absolute kind of normative you you really need to be a level two or three organization we're suggesting that there are places there are kinds of work and kinds of uh, you know product delivery that may function better as level one relationships you want them to be uh, more distant and transactional. But the deeper argument we're making in the book is that those are the kinds of jobs and the kinds of work and the kinds of relationships that are most at risk of being automated by AI. So if we think about where humans really will need to be working and where humans really will need to be adding value, one of the things that we sort of suspect is that things, inc the the rate of complexity is increasing, right? The 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 rate at which our world is becoming more complex is increasing. Therefore, we're sort of suggesting that in that context, it is those personal adaptive relationships that allow us to innovate and be creative. Again, there may be some places in that you know future world of work where transactional relationships are still just fine to get the, you know, the, the widget from point A to point B. But for innovative, creative organizations that have to be responding to this increasing, increasing rate of complexity, this increasing rate of increasing complexity, mm -hmm. um, that's where we see level two and level three being most relevant and really was why we wrote this book. Um, and Peter, you um, so you come from with thirty years of experience from Silicon Valley. Now, as a Brit, I just have to ask you: Can you just describe to me 
what Silicon Valley is for people that kind of have heard it, but might not actually know what it is. Can you just describe what it actually is? Uh, yes, sure. It, it's, you know, it's a stretch that from San Francisco down to San Jose, about 30 or 40 miles that is is represents the the sort of broad expanse of the lower bay of the San Francisco Bay. It is, in fact, a valley, the Santa Clara Valley. The sort of geographical center of it is probably somewhere like Mountain View or Palo Alto, and it's where companies starting with Fairchild Semiconductor and Intel and then Apple and Silicon Graphics and Sun Microsystems and now Facebook and Google and um, all sort of broadly populated within about a 20-mile radius of, um, of again, call it Mountain View. You could, you could sort of look it up on a map and, and um, see that it is, in fact, a very discrete, specific area. And, and it's, that's critical to its history because a lot of the people that sort of grew up around here bounced around in all of the different, you know, different variants of different companies. And the fact that it was a geographically discrete area was important for its, um, you know, its it, the, the sharing culture, the technology sharing culture and the, the innovation culture. Uh, now, one, one thing that's happening is it's shifting um, more to urban centers. So there's as much or more innovation now in cities like San Francisco and Oakland than there is in the sort of the suburban valley context that that really was where the apples and the and the googles originally started i need to add a, a historical footnote of what why this particular locale among other things i think a lot of people believe that that had a lot to do with stanford and berkeley engineering that a huge number of very technically savvy people were available in this relatively small area and it was very similar to what happened in Boston around Route 128, around MIT alumni. So the, the availability of the technical talent is part of the explanation, I think, of why it, if not started here, why it persisted here. Yeah, and, and if you've seen the, the Facebook movie, The Social Network, you note that it started at at Harvard and Cambridge, but they moved out to Palo Alto because the sense was there were more just, you know, hungry 20-year-old programmers available. That's always been true around here. It's a place to come and learn how to hack. <laughs> um, and uh, it just... That's a great you know, recruitment advert. Come here, learn how to hack. <laughs> um, I think for me, what's it's a levels of system question. I want to try and tie what we're talking about. So like you've got this in-person physical locale and we've already talked earlier on the podcast about how there is something important about being in person and comparing it to virtual mm -hmm. and how we can be more connected or not. It seems to me that a lot of our conversation here has been, at least in my head, intrapersonal or interpersonal. It's about the individual and what they're looking to do. And then with another person, like, am I dominating over you or not? And do I have a emotional connection with you or not? What if I take it up several more levels of system? How does humble leadership apply to 
a bounded system? How does humble leadership apply to the entire Silicon Valley area at a larger group level? Is it similar dynamics or does something shift at a higher organizational level of system? Well, it's it's a great point because a study of comparing Silicon Valley and Route 128 around Boston reveals, I think, part of the answer to your question. The This was a, a woman who, who did an ethnography of both places. And what she found was that the creativity in Silicon Valley was very much a function of a norm that the engineers uh, that came out of Stanford and Harvard and Berkeley and so on developed a norm of talking to each other across companies rather than what I experienced at Digital Equipment and other New England companies where there was a lot of company loyalty. You, you, had to, you, you didn't share secrets with your competitors. And it seemed like out here in California, that notion was what's important is our engineering talent and creativity. And if the guy who knows the answer happens to be in my competitor, I feel free to call him and get the answer. And this book argues that that generated a huge amount of, of creative communication at this higher systems level, that it went beyond the individual companies and they all benefited from it. And I guess some dramatic examples would be how how much Apple derived from uh, Xerox Park and how HP and, and DEC and all these other companies and Sun Microsystems infused each other, partly by the movement of the people with talent from company to company. There was no sense of you had to stay in a company, be loyal to it, and keep your knowledge close to the vest. It was a more open environment, probably facilitated also by the geography that it's, that we're all closely packed together uh, in a couple hundred square miles. And, and I think also just by the physics of it, there were, you know, the, the, you know, Silicon Valley is based on people doing stuff that nobody had seen before. The truth is that no one company was going to do it alone. So the the ecosystem idea, um, even though we talk much more about it now than we did 20 years ago, that idea has always kind of been nascent here in the sense that, and maybe it even goes back to the Department of Defense, had these, you know, intense crazy, far-reaching requirements that no one company was going to solve. So the companies kind of had to figure out who's going to do what without sort of shattering our corporate barriers. But that ability to sort of learn how to to um, productively share without that undermining our, you know, competitiveness or integrity as individual companies. So I, I do think that ecosystem mentality has has always been here. It's just sort of it, it's become more and more salient um, as technology has progressed. As technology has become more about software and 
data and less about um, hardware and networks. Further, I think that that idea idea about humble leadership um, really is 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 tuned to that ecosystem context that if more companies think about what they're doing as contributing to an ecosystem and contributing to a greater whole and being less focused on the zero sum of competing with a direct competitor and more focused on adding value to a you know a, a larger whole whether it's a um, it, it's a greater assimilation of data or it's a um, uh, more purposeful uh, adding value to a social need the idea of humble leadership being tuned to that we're more interested in the collective good than we are in the zero sum we win you lose that's very much a we don't talk a lot about that point in the book but we hint at it and we think that's an very very important principle for the next 20 years how about if we pause here and we'll continue this conversation in our next episode so join us in episode seven, where we will continue this conversation with Ed and Peter. Thank you for being with us. Until next time, it's your turn to ask the questions worth asking.